Well, a fun show indeed, Elle, chatting to uh, our old mate, Rob Miles, and quite a varied show in terms of content. Yeah, great to get an insight into some of his sort of escapades, as well as his quite serious injuries, including two broken backs. Yeah, and it was, I actually really enjoyed sharing and recalling some of the, well, recalling some of the stories and then therefore sharing them with the listeners. Stories that most people wouldn't have heard about Rob, because yeah, he's certainly an interesting character. And also get a Welsh perspective on uh, a very un-Welsh wave in the form of Chopu and Tahiti. Absolutely. So yeah, plenty to listen to on this one. Uh, and nothing more to say then. Enjoy the show. Episode 12 of Crest. We're joined in another iteration of our garden studio by a certified hellman. Whether it's snow, dirt or water, today's guest has garnered himself a well-deserved reputation as one of Wales's hardest charging countrymen and has the scars to prove it. We find out what drives the Philly-based pharmacist to throw himself over the ledge time and time again. Thanks for joining us once again for another edition of Crest Live from the Garden Studio. You've no doubt heard the raging debate around the jockification of surfing, as Rob has termed it. That has permeated the last few episodes, but today's guest falls firmly clear of, of any such label. It's Mr. Modest himself, Rob Miles. How are you, Rob? I'm good, thanks, Al. Good. Doing well? Had a, had a good day? Well... We had a better one earlier. <laughs> it could have got it could have gone better earlier at Santa, couldn't it? Could have yeah, been much worse. What do they say? Fair to middling? <laughs> Average to poor. Yeah. <laughs> well, say. we'll be giving you your customary guest intro in just a moment. But first, as is tradition, it's time to formally introduce my colleague for today. To my left is a man who has dedicated his life to destroying all evidence of what he calls his secret sedentary shame. Yes, indeed, for two years in his late teens, he barely left the four walls of his bedroom, instead choosing to gorge on junk food and watch Frasier on repeat. Since leaving the Fausty gloom, he has sought to carve a space for himself in the world of fitness and professional exercising. And he's done all right. It's Elliot Dudley. How are you, Al? Yeah, doing very well. The uh, coming out of, officially coming out of lockdown today, we can travel. 5.1 miles from the house. You can it's, legally uh, travel anywhere you like. Ideal. Yeah. I can, yeah, I'm, I'm free to roam. To How it. are you, Rob? Well, good, thanks. Yep. Been a busy day. We're back in school, of course, but pleased to hear that we can, again, legally travel, like you say, more than that five miles. And now, Rob, one to make you blush. Uh, firstly, welcome to Crest. And as we briefly touched upon in the opening of the show, today's guest is somewhat of a charger, though he'd never tell you himself. On a bike? skis or most importantly for the purposes of crest at least on a surfboard rob miles is someone who will always go from the cliffs of mohair to chopu rob has gone out of his way to push himself over the ledge at some of the world's scariest waves and hasn't always come out unscathed with a list of injuries enough to make most people settle into a life of early nights and hot cocoa it's telling that rob miles has done quite the opposite Embarking on a career in pharmacy and configuring it perfectly to complement and fund his pursuit of death barrels. He's showing no signs of slowing down, but how exactly does a boy from Caerphilly 
end up throwing himself into sub-sea level Chopu on one of the best swells on record. Where did it all start, Rob? <laughs> You're blushing. Oh, I am. I am. Um, we like to give you a good intro. <laughs> Throws them all off guard. Where did it all start? To be honest, I've got to give it down to my dad. Um, my dad was a surfer back in the 60s, but he never really got past sort of maybe going out in two foot clean Cornwall on his longboard and stuff like that. Um, but anyway, I sort of showed a bit of an interest in, well, bodyboarding, I would say. And pretty much what they would do every Sunday, no matter what, two o'clock, they'd rock up at Rest Bay and I was sent in the sea. Whether it was 40 mile an hour onshore or six inches and clean, I had to go in there and sometimes I'd have to come back in at the Esplanade and walk all the way back because <laughs> the current had taken me all the way down I there. I suppose we're, we've all kind of like experienced that. It's the, uh, if you make the drive to the beach, you're going in regardless, yeah. aren't you? Yeah, and I think, yeah, for all three of us, I think now, because we all live yeah. a good sort of half hour at least away from the beach. Once you drive down, you, you're going in, no matter what. Unless it's flat, that's the only reason why I wouldn't go in the yeah. sea. Yeah, it's not often you turn away, is it? So, it started off as, as bodyboarding, like you say. And when when did the surfing begin? Um, I can't remember how I got it. I think my I think my maybe my parents bought me a Bic. It was like a seven three Bic, and um, I think because with the bodyboarding, because I did it for so many years, you just got used to like when to paddle out, how to duck dive. You knew ninety percent of surfing. I find is literally just knowing how to catch. Well, that's it. You see what wave to catch. You see learners, don't you? And and it's, they're kind of doomed from yeah. the start by the like inability to paddle and their lack of where to sit, lack yeah. of knowledge of where to sit and so on. I find the surfing is the easy part, almost. It's being in the right place at the right time yeah. and making sure you're there as much as you can. But so quick transition for you, presumably, from bodyboard to surfboard? Yeah, so as soon as I got the minimal, it was probably only a, I think it was only a couple of months until I bought my first shortboard, where someone sold me like a five, six toothpick. <laughs> which yeah. standard, which was standard practice back in, back <laughs> yeah. in the 90s. Can't sell it, it's fine. Yeah. Yeah. So how, uh, how old were you at that? How old were you when you started surfing? To be honest, I think I was probably about 16, 17 so then. A, a fair, in the grand scheme of things, a fairly late starter. Yeah. And you've gone from, well, yeah, late starter into Chopu. Well, <laughs> Eventually. We'll come to that in a bit, though. We will come to that in a bit. Before that, I did want to mention that you've, um, you, you, you've become known as someone that's travelled quite extensively and, you know, like I say, earning yourself a reputation um, for that. And I... I'd assume that that probably prompted you to pursue that career in pharmacy. Uh, perhaps a, a career path that's never really struck me as uh, a surfer's career path, but seemingly more and more like the ultimate job, because I, I don't think I know anybody that surfs more than you, apart from Elliot. <laughs> I don't know if that's a compliment or, uh, or an indication of, of you know, it's a compliment from me. me being feckless. No. <laughs> no, it's a compliment for me, for sure. I, well, I never did it for that reason. To be honest, I went, I did pharmacy because the school told me to do pharmacy. I just wanted something where I went to university and there was a hundred percent employment rate. Yeah. So you know, a lot of a lot of jobs, you'll go to university and maybe only thirty percent of them get a job. So in other words, you're fighting for that job. But I, I knew I was never going to be that good of a student. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I never wanted to fight for a job. So I sort of came out of uni and pretty much they offered me the last job which was going yeah. which happened to be in the gower basically because I remember no one lived getting there. that gig yeah no one lived there so they thought I was like yes there's quids then, in for you yeah and obviously got all the pharmacy there which I don't think they've ever had a pre-reg before because no one's ever accepted that job yeah so 
it worked. <laughs> so yeah, and that's where it started. Is it as good as it seems as a as a surf job? Um, I mean, it gives you the longer shift patterns. So, um, to me, I find you're better off if you're in work for the day. You're you're better off being in work for twelve hours plus because if you're in work nine to five. By the time you leave and come back to the house, that's basically eight till six. Your day's gone, so you may as well just sacrifice the whole day and just mm -hmm. go at seven and come back at ten. Yeah. Um, because aside, aside from the kind of the midsummer kind of super long days, yeah, yeah, you're, you're always rushing to fit a surfing, which actually. I always find when you rush for a surf, it's, it's never as enjoyable anyway, is it? That's it. And, and it's, yeah. kind of, it's, it's impossible midwinter. Exactly. When, when the surf's mostly good from sort of September till March, you can't really squeeze the surf in after no. six o'clock either. So, um, you know, if you if you can manage to do three 12-hour shifts in a week, that gives you four days completely clear then. Yeah. And um, I think that's worked well for me surfing-wise. Um, but like I say, now I'm moving more towards doing other things as well. Actually, it is quite nice if you finish at six and you can get like a two hour bike ride in as well at the same time. So I remember I, we were talking about this the other day and then I was kind of trying to think back about when we first met and the first time I ever saw you surfing was, I was kind of, I wasn't really doing an awful lot. I was surfing pretty much every day regardless of how good was the waves Port, were. I remember surfing with you yeah. Port Point. So basically there was, um, we used to surf Port Court Point a lot and go out on days really where it was kind of like no one else really wanted it it was like four foot howling on shore yeah. and you were the only other guy that was ever out you know so it kind of you, you kind of you could see you were craving after something a bit more kind of you know less a little, little bit less tame than the, than, the, than the kind of the everyday I guess even back then back into the pharmacy the um apart from being able to surf before or after work again I mentioned that you're kind of you're kind of renowned for your your travel and certainly strike missions it seems to me you always seem to score wherever you go does, does pharmacy allow that or how does it allow it i would say with it's, personally it's for you what's your shift what does your week look like at the moment i am working wednesday thursday friday that is my shift pattern at the yeah moment. so i've got a lovely long weekend of course, <laughs> but so. things do change but i mean when it comes to the holidays i don't get any more holidays than anyone else really but what i would do is maybe i don't do any sort of prolonged travel you know a lot of people go and live in Oz for a year a lot yeah. of people go and live in New Zealand for a year um, like similar to what Elliot's just done they've gone around the world in one big thing so it almost looks counts as sort of one trip to people's eyes yeah but whereas I've never really done that apart from once um, I've just gone for like one week mission so it does look like maybe I go away more than I but it comes across maybe because just because you score all the time so you you obviously don't book in advance. You do yeah, on, a, is, on is a that a cal Is that a calculated thing? Are you, are you or are the, is it just that you've been pretty lucky? So what what we do is we book. So with my job, I can't just take it off sort of willy nilly last second. So you sort of book a week off. Say, I've worked at, looked at the rotor and I've got a week off on the twentieth of January. So what we do, we don't book anything for that. Try and get as many as your friends on the same sort of week off as you can as well. Whoever's up for it. And then when it comes to a couple of days before that, you can see which parts of Europe or the world look good, really. Yeah. So, like, last time it was Morocco. The plan was never to go... My plan was never to go to Morocco again, because I'm never its biggest fan, to be honest. Yeah. Um, I find it quite... It's quite busy. It is sunny. It's a good sunny place to go, but... I Where just, did you go on that trip? We went to Safi. Um, but that chart just lighted up uh, sort of about a week before. But it's not that I took it off work last second. It just happened to have that week off. And um, so that worked really so well. It's luck more than planning. For That's you. a bit of luck, yeah. And so, um, 
year before that, am I right in saying you went to, to Sardinia, of all places, and scored good <laughs> we did, yeah. And there's one place, if you guys need, if anyone's looking at somewhere to go in Europe, like for a week's holiday, you would be in heaven in Sardinia. Really? There's point breaks, slabs, beach breaks, there's no tide, so it you don't even have to get up early, for instance, because the yeah. tide, because there is no tide. It's the same tide all day, the water's see-through. Um, but you do any lo localism there? There was a bit of localism at the one spot, um, but in this one spot there's sort of three different waves, and they're all really good, but there's one which says locals only, but it's the worst one. Right, yeah. <laughs> so, so you just let them crack on with that yeah. and, and make them think like they're being big and tough. A but. bit like the kind of the Coney Beach of Sardinia, I presume. <laughs> yeah, it is a it's, bit, yeah. It's one of those places that's kind of be, always been on my radar. I think there's a quite a famous picture of it in the old Storm Rider Guide to Europe of a guy on like a big, like on a red gun or something, on quite a big wave that you wouldn't necessarily anticipate being in Sardinia. But no, does, does it get big? It does get yeah, We couldn't believe. So the first day we rocked up, the day before the swell, it was flat and we thought, oh, yeah. is this the right thing we've done? Yeah. So we went snorkeling because the water is it's gorgeous. Like, yeah. And there's loads of wildlife in the sea as well. And then the next day, it was, I remember it was like five foot seven seconds on magic seaweed, which you go, this could go either way. Yeah. But it was, I would say, four foot and clean as well. And nice. it did peak at about sort of 12 foot 10 seconds and it was sort of eight or ten feet on the outer points wow. and clean we couldn't, we couldn't believe it and then even down to the size there was one day I was saying to you Rob it was three foot six seconds and we thought we'll just drive to this beach break it was really open and um, it was sort of really short period waves but it was sort of only breaking about 20 yards from the sand but because it was so A-framey it was just coming in and it was just sort of one second head dips either way yeah. we spent hours in there was it um, what time of year did you go there? we went in January and it wasn't warm. It wasn't <laughs> so if you ever go there, I it think was that's a misconception, cold. isn't it? The, the med does get pretty chilly, especially that that kind of part of the the med. It the wind comes straight off the Alps, pretty much, which generates all the swell. So when it hit Sardinia, on top of the mountains, it was actually snowing. Right. And those mountains aren't that high; they're only sort of about, you know, maybe a bit bigger than Penavan. Right. But it was snowing, so I wish I had gloves right. and a hood. But, uh, yeah, <laughs> I would definitely would have put it your on. Your reputation is kind of as as the a man of strike missions, although not planned, I think is probably fairly well, well earned. I think, yeah. I mean, you're known as a bit of a, I wouldn't say lunatic, but you're, <laughs> you're kind of a, you're, you, there's, there's definitely a lack of fear. Um, that's what you're known for. Um, when did that, when did you really notice? I mean, I know we did some trips probably, First trip I ever did to the northeast. To I was going to bring that up. Yeah. Was with you. And, uh, if anything, all, was a strike mission. All three of us from that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was a wild trip. It's like yeah. a foot of snow. Yeah, I mean, it was pretty. It was very reckless. It was the kind of thing you would only do as a student when you yeah. didn't have a brain, probably. Or if you saw the forecast now, I wouldn't. Yeah, I wouldn't go. Oh, well, I think it would probably. It was incredible, though, wasn't it? Yeah, it, it was. Really, really big it stage. Was classic, yeah. But I mean, was that kind of had you already kind of started chasing out kind of those or searching out those really hollow spots at that point? Or no, I think it's probably from the northeast. All this sort of started from because that is always a strike mission. Like you know, it's you you've got you can sort of see it about five or six days out, but you don't really know you're going to go until about a day or two before. Um, and I mean, yeah, like, was it the waves like? Was what got you really into the kind of hollow waves that you know, you know, you're known as a kind of your backside chew ride is pretty solid. 
Is that was it practice up there that really did it? Or? Basically, because I'm rubbish at doing turns, <laughs> <laughs> and I can't do a turn to save my life. So the only thing left is to try and get a head dip, which you can't do in Wales very often. And um, you seem to do it right with that. <laughs> I seem to wedge my head into a couple. There's, there's a few Gower superbanks that you've been renting, uh, <laughs> supposedly. There are. There is one left, I think, in Wales that. I'm not going to say where it is at all, but there is a super bank in Wales somewhere <laughs> that no one seems to know about. <laughs> in, well, we won't. We'll ask you that off, off air. But in, yeah. in addition to the kind of surfing lunacy, you're all. I mean, I my one of my first memories of you was in Cardiff, and I think I, we were in the Cardiff University Surf Club, and I was scared of you just because. You just seem wild. Walk, yeah, you're quite wild, but <laughs> no your lunacy on. seems to transcend surfing and goes. You're you're a really keen uh, mountain biker, a very competent skier. But again, any photo or video I see of you seems to be doing something ridiculous, like or falling off, jumping off a chalet roof on a pair of skis, like, <laughs> it's, yeah, yeah. A pair of skis or doing think, big airs on bikes. A lot of it is is mainly me falling off. Like you guys can testify that I am. Not, I I would say I am probably. Your average Welsh surfer <laughs> who just pushes his luck. Yeah. Okay, so, <laughs> so, okay let me ask another question then. So, are you aware that people think you've got a bit of a screw loose when it comes to these kind of like daring feats, or do you just <laughs> consider it normal? I just think it's to me. It's to me. I think it's normal. I mean, I mean, I know like the Chopu thing, everyone. But to be honest, I think the reason why everyone thinks Chopu is a horrible, horrible wave is because the only videos we see of it is when it's like. 12, 15 foot and people are towing into it. Under that, I would say under 10 foot even, it's actually not that bad and it just washes you over a nice smooth you say that, roof. You can walk over it. I've heard stories of guys going out there on a three foot day and having all their clothes ripped off them. So <laughs> again, it's, it's, yeah, I guess it's varying degrees of normality perhaps. Um, I mean, you'd gone off, you'd, you went to Chobu off the back of, had you been to Pipe at the time? Or? No, I hadn't been to Pipe then. Um, but to be honest, I would say Pipeline is a lot heavier than Chobu just because of the the randomness of Pipeline. Yeah, it's like, not perfect, is it? It's not perfect. There's a lot of people in the sea. There's a lot of people yeah. in the way as well. Um, so when you're paddling for a wave, you can't just paddle into a wave. You've almost got like four people you've got yeah. to sort of jockey through the middle of to get the wave. I, I remember I it's found the worst thing at Pipe was not the wave itself, it was the fact that you couldn't commit to a wave 100% until the last minute. Yeah. There was always someone inside you, there was always someone outside of you, and you never really knew if it was your wave or if it was someone else's. Exactly. It's not yeah. like surfing your local break where you can just commit and go. And 100%. eventually, someone might, you'll be paddling for a wave so it's a closeout, and then loads of people will shout for you to go, and then you think, I don't want to go. I don't want to go, but then you, in your head you just thought, I have to go, otherwise yeah. they're never going to give me a We're wave. talking about all these kind of dreamy, dreamy spots around the world, but going back to the, the mountain biking, which again, whenever I look at Instagram, it just seems to be a picture of, or a video of you flying over these jumps, mountain biking. We are quite fortunate, as you pointed out when we had a little chat earlier, to live in an area with incredible mountain biking kind of facilities. Well, I say facilities, we've got just brilliant runs, right? I would say... To put it into surfing terms, as far as mountain biking is concerned, if you live in South Wales, especially in like the sort of South Wales valleys, it is equivalent of living in Bali at the moment. Mm -hmm. You've got that many amazing world-class spots on your doorstep, which you don't even have to drive your car to. Um, or at worst, within a ten, if you put a 10-mile radius or a 
you know, like the lockdown rules, a five mile radius around, say, Caerphilly, where I'm from, there are so many spots you can go biking. And people would drive across the whole country to go there. Yeah. And a lot of them are sort of what you'd call like sort of still semi little secret spots as well. And um, you've got the like a macaronis, but on mountain bikes. Yeah, on mountain bikes. Yeah. Are and you it makes involved me... in the kind of the underground sort of trail crews, you know? Building no, trails I, I, I will admit I am very lazy. I just, <laughs> I, I just, I just learned that they're built and I go and go and ride them. Yeah. <laughs> I rem- it's funny because it's been like I remember years ago. It was like in um, I think it was it made it in one of the American mountain bike that you know the. Equip their the mountain bike equivalent of surfer mag. Yeah, mm-hmm. there was they actually had like Kumkan um, Forest in in there as like one of the top like ten places to mountain bike in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, perhaps they hadn't visited you know other places in Wales because I'd say there's probably even even yeah. trails than that you know these days. But you know that was a real eye opener for me. You know, thinking, imagine if the surfers as good yeah. as mountain bike. So you know, the the, the message is to surfers of Wales start mountain biking. But a couple of the bike, a couple of the bikers have started surfing occasionally on their longboards, and they did bring up the, the thing of localism. <laughs> yeah. And they had such a good point. And they say in, I don't know, say, for start say I'll say Atlanta. Say they've got a couple of locals at Atlanta who think they should have priority over those. Yes. Well, when it comes to mountain biking, those guys who've dug the trails have yeah. spent hours, days, weeks, years maintaining all these trails. Mm. So. They are sort of genuine locals, where the people who've just been happened to be lucky to have been born in that nearest town. Yeah. Is that how the hell does that make them get priority it's over anyone else? Yeah. Is, is there you a level of priority then for those guys that dig the trails? Or Not really. It just doesn't really. I guess doesn't really happen to be honest. No. If any, if anything, they're really helpful and nice. And then it's not until they came into the surfing, and then they'll have they've had someone shout at them for being a fan to it, say. Yeah. And they say, and they want to turn around and say, "Hang on, did you build this point break? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or did you just be happy that your parents <laughs> born you into that house over there?" Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, that's the endless debate with localism, really, isn't it? Is I guess, I think, the more inconsistent the waves are, or the more kind of infrequent a spot break, infrequently a spot breaks, that tends to be where localism kind of, you know, flourishes a bit more. If you've got like a very, very consistent beach break. The breaks most days you're not going to get it as much yeah um, but luckily in wales like, to be honest i don't think we really have any problems i've never really seen any no. problems you're immune to it i'm not immune to it <laughs> i, I think welsh people sorry. are maybe just a bit too friendly probably yeah um, we're, we are inherently friendly as a as a, as a nation i think i think you could find it if you if you sort of just kept paddling back and forth to the peak every wave i think you would get it but well, I do it all the time, mate. Yeah, Elliot's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Joking. Yeah, if Dan noticed, Elliot does get most of the. <laughs> <laughs> and he dropped in on me the other day. Oh, dear. On it's camera the, as well. There's video evidence, yeah. Yeah. I'll, uh, I'll, yeah, I'll post it. We can, I'll send it through and we can, uh, we can put it out with the, uh, with the podcast. So, aside from. Then I believe I live closer to the Ogmore than you. Not at the moment, yeah. I'm currently, oh. I'm currently homeless, so yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. We'll leave it at that. <laughs> Aside from the mountain biking, the skiing, the surfing, um, I've also seen you, your lunacy, as we'll term it, again in, in inverted commas, kind of rear its head in other forms. And this is at the uh, an event that we talked about quite a lot on Crest, and that's the Bucks Student Nationals. Oh gosh. And this is one of my first memories of you. <laughs> We were in some nightclub near the harbour, and you reminded me of it of it earlier. But you were dressed as a woman at the time, and <laughs> nothing new. I just remember seeing you getting kicked out of this nightclub naked. Well, you weren't quite naked because you had a pair of socks on by these bouncers that had wrestled you off stage. And they said, "They said, wait there. We're going to go inside and get you a bag." 
to walk home, you know, presumably a bin bag or something like that. And you said, no need, boys, in your kind of Welsh drawl, and out of your, out of your socks produced a pair of boxer shorts that you had prepared. Do you, I mean, do you always take boxers in your, uh, your socks? It wasn't the f well... <laughs> You'd like to say it wasn't the first time. No, it wasn't the first time. It's unfortunate. Whenever you go out wearing a dress, I just assume that it's probably going to get ripped off by someone. <laughs> <laughs> and the not wearing of underwear, is that a worry about visible panty line? Or is it, yeah. it, does it spoil the, the line of the dress? Or is it I, can't, I can't remember if I actually wore pants under the right. dress or did I just throw them into the crowd? <laughs> I, I, I can't remember. They went at some point anyway. Yeah. Okay, well, the less we dwell on that, the better. Um, I'd like now to, if we can, talk about something that... A lot of people kind of, again, know you for this. Um, kind of word spreads around, doesn't it, quickly in, in Welsh surfing circles. And it was the horrific injury you sustained when oh. you fell off a cliff, basically. <laughs> yeah. And, well, I mean, talk us through it. it what happened? Don't, don't, I mean, don't tell us well, sorry, what, about what happened, but what was the, the, the kind of fallout from it? Excuse the pun. I mean, looking back at it, it was just an accident waiting to happen, really. Well, you know, I think it's, it's something that we did through uni mm -hmm. um, a couple of times. And then for some reason I thought, oh, I know what a great idea would be. Let's have my 30th birthday party there. Yeah. In the middle of nowhere, we'll have a big campfire. But obviously that just... And it was next to the cliff edge. <laughs> it sounds unbelievable now, but no one even thought of it at the time. Yeah. Um, but... Um, the lo Long story short, you fell off a cliff, but what, yeah. what, what was the... What happened, what happened as a result of it? What kind of injuries did you sustain? Well, um, it's quite a long list. I have to start. Do I start from the head down head, or let's the go head down? Head <laughs> down. So, first of all, first of all, I had a load of stitches in the back of my head and a fractured skull. Going down from that, then I broke my back in two places. Um, on my right side, I'd broken my shoulder. On my left side, I'd broken my arm in multiple places. I had nine broken ribs and two punctured lungs. Um, I broke my hip, I had compounded my femur and broke my ankle and there was loads of other little bits of stitches around there as well, which <laughs> I can't remember where they were. But And presumably airlifted? Airlifted, airlifted, yeah, but just remember when you're at Pete's Reef, there's no phone signal. So some boys had to run up in the dark to the top of the cliff to try and get a phone signal and they say, where are they? And they'll be like, he's at Pete's Reef, well... Yeah. <laughs> Where's that? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like, uh, where's that then? And then how do you describe a reef in the Gower reef stretch? Yeah. You know, that stretch is probably five miles long mm -hmm. and they needed a pinpoint, so I'm not sure how they got there. Yeah. <laughs> they got but they, there but they, they did. They, they, didn't, did have that, they didn't have that three word local localization yeah, sort of thing back then, did they? No, you know, no. It would have been helpful actually. So, and then they sent the wrong helicopter because the first helicopter couldn't land. Oh. So they had to get a winch in helicopter, so that had to come. And then none of the police, obviously, or the ambulance could find where we were from the car park, which was a good, you know, even in the daylight, you know, it's a good 20 minutes walk. Yeah. So in the pitch black, they had no chance of finding where we were. So of all places to fall off a cliff, it was probably the worst place to choose and the worst time of yeah. day to do it at midnight. And, I mean, I can't even imagine sustaining those kind of injuries, but very yeah, painful. Uh, not at the time. <laughs> at the time, yeah. no. But um, out of it, I imagine. Yeah, when when you I, to be honest, I don't really. My friend Dan, the last thing I remember was getting carried onto the winch for the helicopter, and he dropped me, and that's the last thing. I remember. Yeah. <laughs> so he tripped, yeah, I think he was at the back. 
I think it was a trip to work because he couldn't see where he's walking. <laughs> and that was it. <laughs> so, um, was there like, were you scared when it happened? Like, did you have? I think I was just in shock, to be honest. I think I remember my leg was just sort of bananaed out. Yeah. Sort of looked pretty deformed. Well, um, I presume you, you bounced a few times on your way down, hence all the injuries, or was it a No, it was down? just straight on the bottom, but it wasn't really a flat landing, I think. That's is what caused it all. Right. Um, so, I, you know, looking at it now, if you look off the edge, like how... So, uh, you know, the, the luck involved in surviving that. You've obviously trip. been down, surfed down there since. Yeah, surfed down there since. Bring shut, sort of give you shudders going there. No, I thought it would, but I could dangle my legs off it. <laughs> Sit on the edge, I thought it no. would, but it never did. So um, the the recovery from that then, presumably, was long-winded. It, it was, it wasn't... Um, the it doctors, was, that they must have just been pulling their hair out at the thought of it. <laughs> to be fair, the do doctors are experts at putting you back together, what I would say. It, it couldn't, you can't get a better... You couldn't get a better treatment than what I had in the hospital, but once you get... Once you leave hospital, you are sort of, the recovery is a lot down to you. Yeah. So the physios are there to help you and point you in the right direction, but having sort of two half-hour physio sessions a week is not going to make you better. So I sort of, because I was getting, obviously I was off work, so I just used it as a nine-to-five job almost. So I was sort of going to the local swimming pool, doing laps across the swimming pool, you know, walking frontwards and walking backwards, walking sideways until yeah. I felt comfortable. And I would sort of start in sort of neck-deep water because it takes more weight off your legs, really, the deeper yeah. water you're in. And then you just move your way shallower and shallower. Um, so you put more and more pressure on your legs then, and that's how I sort of learned to walk and move again, doing that then. I think it's one of those things with the, the NHS is amazing, um, but they, they never have the time or resources to give you kind of... It, it's aimed at your average person, whereas, yeah. you know, most, even most normal surfers are, are what you, in terms of their activity level are above average. And they're, yeah, not gonna, exactly. and they're probably not going to want to go back to um, the level of activity that's expected. They want to go, want to go above and beyond. Exactly. Yeah, that's yeah. the question I was going to ask next. So, was there at any point was it in doubt that you might be able to surf or do all these things that you enjoy doing again? I mean, in hospital, they did tell me that I'd have to accept that things are never going to be the same. Uh, I bet that didn't but, sit very well with you. <laughs> not, not the best. But the, at the time, I was sort of just. To be honest, I was in, I was, I think I was sort of semi in shock for a couple of weeks, really, about what yeah. just happened and how much has just gone wrong. And um, you don't really feel like I, it was lucky that I survived, or it was lucky that it was me who went off that cliff and no one else, because mm. inevitably it was my fault that that happened mm. in the first place. You know, it was me who organised that party. It was me who decided to have it there. It was, mm. you know, it was me who should have thought, if, you know. <laughs> put the thought yeah, in it could and a bit of risk assessment really before I decided to do that so um, you know I didn't really think of the positives of it until yeah. a couple of couple of weeks later when I found myself sort of walking again and moving again but I mean, more than anything it was luckily they put all metal down my leg in my leg because it was the femur was completely shattered and the hip was broken quite well it was uh, so that's made of metal now so yeah. technically that was miles. fixed right away so you said a couple of weeks um, afterwards, you were walking again. I'd have thought such injuries would have been like months. No, well, I just started. I just, I literally did in Caffili swimming pool. I was going in the OEP hour as well, yeah. <laughs> so I didn't get in people's Digital. way. Um, I was just, I was spending hours and hours in the pool until I was sort of like a crinkly mess. 
Yeah. And then they'd have to help me get out of the pool sometimes. Because <laughs> they still couldn't get out of it. So give, give us a time frame then for recovery from those injuries. What was the first kind of major feat you achieved post-injury? So I did walk up Pernavan, um, mainly because apparently I said it when I was in hospital. So I thought I'd keep with that, or at least give so it a you said, I, When they said you, can't, you won't be able to do these things, you said I will... I will walk up Penavan yeah. within this period of time. And but what, kind of, what time period? What time frame did he give? It took me. Uh, I said a month. A month. So <laughs> it took it took me five and a half hours to do it. You did it within a month. Yeah, I did it on the day of <laughs> a month to the day I did it on, and um, it did take me five and a half five hours, hours, which is torture. Yeah, yeah which was within a month after doing it, sustaining all those injuries is incredible. But the way I thought of it, I was like, I either do it or I just sit on the couch. Yeah, I had nothing to lose. Basically, it was middle of the summer as well. So, do you have any like? Re I mean, obviously, any any time you break a bone, you're, you you are more at risk of you know arthritis, that kind of stuff. And you know, like I've broken a couple of bones, and you do get the odd niggle. Do you still get stuff of that like that, or, or not really? Only in my wrist, because my wrist, did, there's one bone in my arm there, and the end is snapped off just before that lump. Yeah. Um. But it does give me. It is you know sort of semi bit of pain. I'm sure it'll get worse as I get older. Yeah. But they sort of did suggest that maybe every 10 years I'd have to go in and they'd have to... Whatever they do to the bone to stop yeah. stop the arthritis so, getting quite so Okay, biased. so apart, apart, from apart from physical injuries, was there ever a thought that... Like, well, I mean, you said you could dangle your feet off the cliff when you went down nice. the but did you? Does it ever make you take, take a step back and go, oh, this could end in disaster? No, no, it's not. And, and I genuinely thought all the way through, I said, I'm dreading looking off the edge of something ever again. And then it seems like got to the edge or something, just Amazing. nothing, absolutely nothing. Maybe it'll come back and haunt me, that I don't no. know, but not at the moment. It wasn't the first time you broke your back, was it? <laughs> no, it was the second back break. So what What was the sort of situation, were you you were, you were, uh, were you travelling or were you about to go travelling with that, with that one? Uh, the first one I was snowboarding and thanks to a dodgy grind rail, I wouldn't say dodgy grind rail, dodgy snowboarder trying to grind rail. I just missed, I just messed it up. Uh, annoyingly, I'd done the grind rail quite a few times, and for some reason it just went over and uh, snap, snap, snap. So it's a couple of breaks on that one as well. And that was just before I went for my first round the world trip um, to Tahiti. But I had about, I did have about three and a half months to recover from that right. one, and it wasn't a particularly bad break. It was sore, but it wasn't. So when you went, when you got to Tahiti, you kind of had a bit of a dry spell, really. Well, I'd been, I'd been to, I've just, I'd just come back from J Bay, and I spent two weeks in Peru as well. Right. Oh, like, this is this is the round the world trip. Yeah. Oh, talk talk with, through the itinerary. What? Which wasn't much. Well, it's Where a bit of a dodgy itinerary because it was it was to J Bay and back. The backwards one. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and then it was to Peru, and then from Peru to LA, LA to Tahiti, and then Tahiti to New Zealand. And in Australia, then um, they must be paying you pharmacists too much. That's yeah. the most expensive <laughs> round the world trip I think going, isn't it? It wasn't cheap. But I, well, I did. I did plan ahead for a good sort of. Was it one of those like all in, like bundles where you pay like a, a no, no grand and a two grand and you get like seven flights or something? No, I just freestyled it. And at one point, I got to Peru to fly to LA, and I, they'd cancelled my flight. No. They sent me the email, but obviously I didn't check the emails. <laughs> <laughs> so I just went to check into my flight. I'm oh, sorry, sir. That uh, doesn't exist. <laughs> so, so, but the one thing I would say to everyone, anyone's listening, I would just say that if you are booking trips like that, always book a return because for some reason, even though you just want to fly to Peru, 
it's a lot cheaper to buy a return trip to, 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 from London to Peru back to London than it is just to buy one from London to Peru, which mm. makes no sense. No. The other thing I've noticed um, on, the, on sorry, the trip I was on recently is that unless you've got definitive proof that you're leaving a country, they're really, really reluctant to let you in these days. Yeah. Um, even to the point where, you know, like, we, we had like flights booked, but they were kind of, they were open flights, you know, on around the world yeah. ticket. And they, want, they wanted like a precise day, otherwise they wouldn't let us in the country. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it, is, it is tricky for sure. Not just entertainment, just good advice on <laughs> crest cats. Amazing, so as you were, sorry, as you were saying, the, the itinerary, you, you went to South Africa, Peru, Peru, so LA. LA, then to Tahiti. Tahiti. This is the kind of this is the bit I think that we want to drill down on, <laughs> because you served Chopu on what has been described as one of the best swells they've, the the locals have ever seen there. They Just were, for its its consistency, wasn't it? As much yeah, better. I mean, I don't know whether it was good for me. It was good to watch. <laughs> well, it was that swell that uh, Nathan Florence got that incredible, yeah, that was much publicised barrel on. That believe it or not, that was the third swell out of three big swells which happened in that two week period. But the reality was. I was there for two weeks and it was probably five or six days which you couldn't surf because it was just so big and there's nowhere in Tahiti which is like a sheltered spot so you know you get to, you got a massive swell coming into say Rest Bay, you've got Kona you can go and surf. Mm -hmm. In Tahiti it doesn't happen, there's no, way you, there's, yeah. there's no way you can surf which is sort of sheltered from it also and the only place which holds a big swell is Chopu which obviously you can't right. surf but it is great to paddle out to and have a watch though. So you paddled out on the big days? I paddled out on the big days and you can sit in the channel and watch it. Is it, uh, this is the kind of, everyone, everybody's familiar with how the wave looks and often when it, it's really, really big, so that's when the video footage gets published, but I mean, very few people, certainly surfers in Wales, have actually gone there and surfed it. So I kind of wanted to get a flavour of what it looks like. How far is that paddle? Does it take a long time? It takes about, I would say it takes about 20 minutes from the, from the actual, the beach all the way around to Chopu. Right, okay. And when you look at it, when the first time I got there, because I avoided it on the first day, it was sort of like 10 foot and clean. Yeah. And I just thought, oh, it's going to be rammed. I don't yeah. want to be sat in the way of anyone. So I avoided it on the first day and surfed one of the other passes. The next day it was sort of, it was probably about six foot and about midday, the wind goes sort of cross shore. Yeah. And um, so anyone who goes in, goes in in the morning. So I paddled out at midday and I was actually on my own. There was no one in. Wow. And this happened quite a few times as well. There was midday there was just no one and still in. pretty good still really good um the handle handle the cross or... yeah it was fine because it was just like a takeoff into a sort of barrel you just and you jump out the end and yeah. it wasn't too bad but when you look at it i couldn't even see when you look at it from the beach you can't really see trip it's really difficult so it's almost if you think of just like a reef pass which is about i think it's probably about half a mile long and then chopu is sort of just in the middle of it and it's a wave from the car, it just looks like it breaks and then it's like a half a second gap before it closes out on the reef again yeah. and that is Chopu and from the car you just think is that a wave? Yeah. <laughs> like is, is that actually for real? And um, so you, you paddle out there and there was nowhere really to, I, there was no one there so I didn't know where to sit. It did take me about 45 minutes to catch my first wave and it was only a four footer Yeah. I didn't get barreled. <laughs> I was so much on the shoulder it jumped off the end but it was a good so place is, to is start. A, is, did, who were you with on that, on that trip? No one, I went, um, that part of the trip I was on my own for then. Um, so out there completely solo, no one around? Completely solo, <laughs> yeah. That's a, again, that, even though it's, there's only four foot, it's still a, like surfing Chopu by yourself. It's pretty sketchy. It's, it sounds sketchy, 
and it feel it did feel sketchy. But what I would say was it. There's a, a, a at that size. I would say I don't know if we're allowed to name spots in the northeast. Yeah. yeah. Well, you can say town but, certainly. Say the point at Staithes. Yeah. At that size, that is a lot heavier than Chopo is. Really. A lot heavier. And um, you know, I say you don't really see that really thick lipped chopo until it gets to sort of ten, foot, what I would call ten foot plus, really. That's and then, really interesting. Underneath that, it, I mean, the thing which does put us off because we're Welsh, when we're used to seeing no rocks. Yeah. Is looking straight down at the reef. I've, often, I've often said this, you know, a, a lot of our local reef breaks. I think, you know. The amount of times I've grounded myself, even just paddling out duck diving, so you know they are shallow, yeah. but you, you're almost blissfully ignorant that the brown water yeah. can be a bit of a blessing. Yeah, and you know, especially you know, there's a lot. Of, there are quite a few. You know, even say Porthcawl Point, for instance. Mm -hmm. There's you know, you can take off pretty shallow there. Yeah. Well, Imagine if that water was see-through and you exactly. just saw them all looking at you. I think Rhino has always said that about the about the point and the S. If it were clear. You wouldn't surf it. No, you wouldn't. You just well, say a lot that. Of people just, surf that's it, just on dry reef. You'd surf it. No, I, I try to fall yeah. off on it. But no, it does. It takes that. You mentioned. You mentioned the like the fact that you sort of look at it from the car. You obviously you got. Can you stay actually in the village itself, or is it? Were you like staying a little bit further away from it? I stayed in a hostel, which was to be honest, it was a bit annoying. It was about forty minutes drive away, um, which is fine because you could just drive willy nilly through the. You know, through Tahiti, which is pretty beautiful, and you pass loads of little nice little beaches and stuff like that. Um, but when I get there, I'd already paid for the hostel for two weeks, which is more than enough money. But when you're passing, you see loads of little homestays, yeah, where I think little families own, and they'll have a sign up saying, Oh, you know, $50 a night if you want to stay, yeah, which was annoying. So if, if you were ever to go there again, I would there's probably more online now, yeah, but at the time, because it was a, quite a few years ago now, um, I don't think they'd really got on top of all the online sort I of remember stuff. Um, there was a longboard event once, it was like a European tour event that ironically they held, obviously because Tahiti's part of France officially, yeah. um, they had a European tour event in Tahiti and I think maybe one French guy went there because it was just so expensive, you know, there was like limited flights and then when you got there, you know, there was like nowhere to stay. Um, it it sat, like, always seemed to me like it was one of those really expensive trips. Could you do it on a budget or not really? No, I've, I've looked at going there again because I would love to go there again before we get too old. <laughs> <laughs> but the flights, it's just extortion, you know, you're looking at about a th one and a half thousand pounds for a flight there. Mm. Just because there's so many changes you have to do and uh, inevitably there's not many places, not many airlines who fly straight into Tahiti. Yeah. So no, no matter which way you go, you, obviously you can get to LA cheap enough. Yeah. But to get from LA to Tahiti, or from well, New Zealand to Tahiti, there's only one. I was on a flight from LA to the Cook Islands on a round-the-world trip. The Cook Islands was a stopover, like a three stops. So we had it. Yeah. And there's a, a hurricane or cyclone, as, as they call it over there, was hitting uh, Rarotonga where we were due to land, and we were about an hour out. And the captain said, "Oh, ladies and gentlemen, we are diverting to Tahiti," and. We were just like fist. Oh, like, nice. we were, we're going to Tahiti, and they're going to have to put us up in a hotel. Yeah, it's going to be great. And we made our approach, and we started like losing altitude as we came into Tahiti. And you could see the runway; it was that close. And they pulled up. Said, "Oh, the weather's cleared." And they pulled up and took, <laughs> oh, us, back to, no. took us back to the Cook Islands for two weeks, which is even more expensive than Tahiti. And there was no waves. Oh. It was so close. I was so close to having it. So the prices are more scary than the waves, presumably. They are. They are. <laughs> um, but uh, I mean, when I, I've ever since, since since you've been somewhere and you look at say, uh, you know, a WCT event there, 
almost every event I watch that they never get that it's rare that they get a big swell really yeah. or if they do get it it's, it's more than a day so I'd actually love to go there and have like a normal waiting period where mm. it was just between sort of three and eight yeah. feet or something do you think it'd be busy then I don't think it would I think it is in the morning so first light a lot of people will go out but if you went out sort of 11 in the morning till two or three in the afternoon more often than not I was on my own Amazing. I presume Which there's a believe. lot of other spots there though. I've heard of some really good right-handers as well. There are, and but the only thing with those are they're quite a swim. So unless you've got a boat or you're prepared for a 45 minute swim, like some of them are really far offshore, yeah. like a lot further than, than Chopu. Um, so unless you had a boat, so there's, no there's not like a, just a super nice easy back beach that you can go surf? You know? No, there's one beach break there and it's really rippy. It's really... It's really hard to surf. Right. <laughs> it's really hard to it, surf. This is really interesting because, of, of course, the kind of the media surf media portrayal of Chopu and Tahiti is basically, well, Chopu, isn't it? That's, yeah. That's the wave that everybody goes to, and you don't see the the movement from the coast or from the beach to the to the lineup. It's purely from the boat and the lineup, and that's it. Yeah. So it's nice to get and this. And they're, they're getting the VIP take. treatment as well. Absolutely. They? They're, they're, not not driving, they're not pulling up in a higher car and paddling no. for twenty minutes. With, no, with yeah. for us, I would say there has hasn't got that much variety of surf. Um, really, because unless you're rich enough to pay for a boat, um, you're really stuck with maybe like three or four spots yeah. which pick up that swell. Um, so say if it was six foot and clean, mm -hmm. there are plenty of really good spots, but you, apart from Chopu, there's not many which you can actually swim to. Yeah. So obviously we've talked about your escapades globally. Um, on a more local level, you do always seem to score. Um, you know, we, I very rarely see sort of, maybe it's just the, the social media world these days, you only see the best bits. <laughs> yeah. But you do generally seem to score good waves or better waves than most people again, and with very little crowd. So is that, what's the secret with that? Is it just that you know where to go or you're just willing to go a bit further? Um, I think it's all a case of rolling the dice a little bit with it. So if you know it's hard to do it without naming spots. So if you've got, say, someone like Clantuit, which is absolutely perfect, like yeah. the day of the year for Clantuit, generally that means it's the day of the year for that whole entire South Wales coast yes. sort of thing. Yeah. But you are sort of rolling a dice where you do have to sacrifice that day of the year you probably yeah. waited all for to go and surf somewhere does, else. Does that then depend on how often you surfed running up to it? So if you've had a couple of good surfs, is that because like a three or four day swell, you've had two or three days of good waves? Uh, I mean, it's a, it's a no-brainer, surely, that fourth day of rolling the dice, but the first day of the swell? Mm, I think it's more to do with when you've rolled the dice and you've rolled it wrong. So, you know, eventually when you, when you keep getting you start to get to know when these spots sort, yeah. sort of work a little bit more then, but you do have to sort of, you will lose out on a few good days mm -hmm. first, but then eventually you will get better days because even though maybe the waves might not be quite as good, but you will be there on your own or with just a couple of friends or... Yeah, it's that toss-up, isn't it? What so, would you rather? Yeah, so for me, I would rather surf a wave which is maybe a 7 out of 10, mm -hmm. with not so many people out, rather than surfing a 10 out of 10 wave with everyone out, where you yeah. might have only you might only catch one wave really, and um, or you can catch thirty really good waves. Say, yeah. and is, is that it's, getting harder? Do you think do you it's think? definitely getting harder now? I think um, people. I, I mean, Google Maps and it's better forecasts, and you know you can load up on wind charts, and you can just see when you put the wind on top of the coast which parts of the coast are going to be offshore. 
and you can sort of work it out. I think a lot of people are working it out a lot more now. Do you think the surfers, the surfing kind of psyche has changed a little bit in that people seem to want to share? Oh, share it a bit more these days. That you know, everyone's desperate for people to know that they've scored. Exactly. Yeah. So there's certain people you can't, under no circumstance, would you ask, would you bring them along with you because yeah. you know it would just be plastered in on Instagram, for instance. And the next thing to know, all their friends will be like, "Where was that taken? Where was that taken?" And eventually, they're going to crack and they're going to tell them. And next thing you know, instead of you being there on your own. There's going to be 15 people out on the next swell, which did happen once to me because I told one certain South Wales surf photographer where I'd surf. Yeah. Next swell, there was 13 people out on a wave that oh, I'd no. never seen anyone wow. before. Yeah, and it's not just in kind of our local area. You're you're willing to make those drives, aren't you, to other areas of Wales? And I, you you said that people are kind of becoming more aware of using Google Maps and so forth. I mean, my experience view is that, that you, you've done that, and I've been on trips with you where you've kind of put that to good use, and we've scored some good waves around the place. Yeah, I mean, a lot of it is good novelty waves as well, though, to yeah. be honest. So you might get a good photo, but really, is it... Is it as good as it looks? Is it okay. as good as it looks, yeah, because, I mean, a photo... Okay, mate, we're, we're seeing behind the magician's cloth here, because quite a lot of the, the, the videos that you put on, on Instagram and Facebook are of you getting barreled, point of view, GoPro in the mouth, GoPro in the hand, wherever it is. Yeah. Are they as good as they look? The annoying thing about those GoPro videos is the best ones I can't post because it shows exactly where they are. Oh, no. So, a lot of them, if you do come out of the barrel, you can just... Yeah. Everyone's like, oh, that's oh, there. Oh, that's why you so always you, post closeouts. So, you, if, you post, <laughs> if you post something where they can't, if, when the lips completely cover yeah. it, they can't see where it is. Okay. I've got a question for you, actually, on the GoPro front. Uh, I've tried, you know, like most people, to get some decent GoPro footage, yeah. particularly actually the bar the inside the barrel shot. Yeah. Um, it always looks so small. I, I had a really <laughs> yeah, great surf really in New odd. Zealand, funnily enough. I was at, um, I think it was called Greymouth, which is on the west coast of the South Island. Perfect little wedgie beach break. I was out there on my own, getting just, you know, just perfect little barrels. Yeah. Took the GoPro out. I, I thought I was killing it basically. I was like, got out, you know, and the first thing you do is like plug the, the SD card in. Yeah. And I look at the footage and it's literally just, you can't even tell that I was in the barrel. It makes, <laughs> yeah, you know, just it, like, <laughs> I'm starting getting really self conscious and thinking maybe I wasn't getting tubed. So, what, what is the secret with the, with the GoPro shots? You, you seem pretty, you're pretty good at them. To be honest, what I've done now is Google Images. <laughs> <laughs> Apart from that one, yeah. Photoshop. <laughs> what I've done, I got a poll which is not meant for this. And I put the GoPro on a pole, and because the pole is behind you, yeah. it does make it look like you're a lot deeper in the barrel than you are. Or sometimes, just the GoPro is getting barreled on some photos. Yeah, but yeah. I've done that specifically just for the photo for my wall, to be honest. Yeah. Um, but with the GoPro in your hand on the pole, it is very, very hard to make it out of the barrel because you don't realise how much you use that inside hand yeah. in the face of the wave to like make sure you're in the right place. When that's like that, you. You pretty much you can't pump in the barrel you've just got to hope that you're going to come out and more often than not you don't yeah whereas when it's in your mouth it gives you a lot more freedom to if you have to sort of meander your way through okay. it yeah it's, it's sacrifice for the art of photography it is so generally with the pole i'd leave it on the beach and i'll make sure i get like say an hour and a half surfing okay. and then i'll just go and grab it for 10 minutes at the end of a surf okay that makes sense because i i have wondered this before because Quite a lot of Otherwise your sessions, especially when you're like away. I think there were some really good ones, good photos and videos of you in California. Yeah. Um, like Northern or Central California, I think it was. And you had some really good ones. And yeah, that it is literally just leaving it in the car on the beach. Okay. And you just grab it. Actually, I was just thinking, there's too many to mention. Even like you had Taiwan, you were scoring waves. 
Oh, Taiwan. That Australia trip we did. Like Ireland. Yeah. Yeah. You, yeah. I mean, yeah, you, 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 quite I think, I think you kind of undersold your your travelling exploits, anyone. <laughs> but um, talking, it's funny that you mentioned. Well, we talked about the GoPro and the, those those barrel shots because largely, as Elliot said at the beginning, modest Mr. Robert Miles, or Mr. Modest Robert Miles. Oh. You are someone that you. I mean, you've been on um, mine and Elliot's radar for a long time because we obviously we went to university with yeah. you. We, we know you really well, but largely, you're kind of the epitome of of that underground charge you're someone that conducts their business without the kind of the pomp or the ceremony again aside from those gopro videos that you post relentlessly <laughs> where, where does i mean again we this will lead into another debate i'm sure in a moment but we've talked about um today's kind of surf psyche where people post pictures immediately and that seems to be the motivation for lots of people Mm, yeah, I, know, I get what you mean. Yeah. I don't think that's yours. I mean, it might be, but where does that motivation for to continue surfing, to continue travelling, and searching for these wave waves come from? I think it's about sort of um, a lot of people will post stuff online just so they get sort of other people's yeah. It's that hit of gratification. Yeah, is it dopamine that like, the hit of dopamine you get they, when you like they get feed off like, other people yeah. either being jealous or thinking, oh, that's an amazing photo. Mm -hmm. <sighs> but for so, you, is it the so? more a real feeling. I, I'm, not, I'm not saying that you, oh, it doesn't feel good, you know, it's great yeah. if you put a photo on thingy and you go, oh my god, looks like yeah. you made a great decision, but actually the reality was the GoPro's in the barrel, not me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it looks amazing, but actually it's probably not as good as it looked. And okay. Like I said, Wales, if one place is good, generally the whole coast is good. Yeah. So, um, so wh your motivation for to continue doing these things? Where does it to be honest, from? as I get older, I think a lot of it's just for exercise. Yeah. <laughs> we can't, actually can't we get not the answer. We, we actually for talked it. about this uh, <laughs> yeah. when we uh, like surf today, like the kind of when it's like it was today. Yeah. And I always say this: it's like, well, people say, "What was it like?" And I'm just like, "It was exercise." Yeah. Because you're literally going out to, for an hour just to get in and yeah, exactly. Get yeah. <laughs> and I think as we get older, I think when I when he was twenty, and I mean, it was almost like, it was almost like a game who would get the best surf. Yeah. But then you're only you only rely on people's word of mouth and yeah. You know, you it could be an average day, but you could catch every good wave. It just could be the luck. It's your luck that day, and you could have a great surf where actually someone else is in exactly the same position and get hardly any good waves, and they've had a terrible surf. So you get. So talking about that, you and Elliot obviously surfed kind of subpar conditions today. <laughs> yeah. Are you still having surfed all these amazing locations and, and conditions around the world? Are you still as enthused to surf two foot slop in Wales as you once were? No. Can you do it as often? Mm. I mean, obviously you've got the time to do it as often, but are you, do you have the motivation to do it as you often? Know, I've been speaking to some people today, and I did say I am Welsh surfed out at the moment. Yeah. There's only so many cutbacks you can do <laughs> yeah. in three, because I have surfed three days in a row now. I didn't really want to go today. I just thought I'd feel bad if I didn't. Oh, the guilt. Yeah, yeah and I yeah, feel yeah. it was like a case of the fear of missing out. It was the FOMO feeling. Yeah. And I was like, oh, if you don't go, you're gonna regret it. Another thing I always find is that the more the more you surf, the more you want to surf. When when you've had like a, an injury, for example, and you know you can't be in for six weeks or yeah. six months, even you, you get used to it and you accept it. But when you've been surfing daily, it kind of then becomes, well, what do I do if I'm not surfing? Almost like you know, it's like today if I hadn't have surfed, I don't really know what would have been better than you know than surfing. I guess for you now, mountain biking might be a better alternative because that's something that you kind of. It's definitely helped, like, for instance, tomorrow the northeast is cooking, and I have sacrificed it to go biking tomorrow. <laughs> wow. Change so, man. Yeah, it is getting that Age. way. Age. I, I guess it's difficult it's, at the moment, isn't it? Because I think yeah. we'd all feel 
you know, as much as we can now travel more freely, I mean, I still think I'd feel pretty guilty going on a strike mission, you know, somewhere 300, 400 miles away. <laughs> yeah. yeah, maybe it's not everywhere. Yeah, no, but yeah, but we all have to test our eyes, guys. Come on, it's not yeah. Fun. <laughs> <laughs> and it is nearby. <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. There are some very uh, yeah, well-known landmarks. So, um, <laughs> but, yeah. Talking, uh, going back to the, the kind of Instagram, the motivation, the Instagram motivation to surf, we have been having um, a debate here yeah. on Crest, and I think Elliot said it at the beginning, the jockification of surfing, as I termed it. Okay. We've been discussing whether surfing should head more in that kind of jock uh, direction or whether we should stick to our roots and it's, it's really hard to define jockification um, but on the, the previous podcast um, I, I, gave, I tried my best to define it and it was with the help of my sister actually she said it was trying to make surfing into another sport it was trying to make it into like a football kind of sport rather than acknowledging the kind of the heritage in surfing that, that I mean it is unique in a sport in that we do have all this heritage surrounding it and the lifestyle and, the, and I know this kind of annoys a lot of people, but the culture, that word. So are you pro-jockification of surfing or are you a, are you a purist as well? Are you all about the, 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 <laughs> I mean, unfortunately, the lifestyle? I think the culture of surfing is unfortunately probably long gone, especially in the younger generations. Mm-hmm. Um, but you, I think as you get older, I think you do start sort of inheriting that way a little bit more. Um, yeah, I, I, you're right. per- from, from my point of view, you're someone that I would consider to be to kind of all. I mean, it's it's not it's more nuanced than saying jock or purist. But I'd say you're on the purist side, and that you're all about the kind of the travel and the fun around it. Like half the fun on surf trips I've been on with you, or more than half, is not the surfing. <laughs> it's what goes on on the beach and this is everywhere else. This is my exact thing. When the people speak to me, because uh, you know, in pharmacy, not many people surf, and they're quite happy. To, you know, they first thing, why do you surf? But the thing is, most of the surf trips. Most of your friends, all the surf, all the places you've been around the world, none of it would have happened if it wasn't for surfing. Yeah. And inevitably, I wouldn't have been in that nightclub completely naked if yeah. it wasn't for surfing. And I wouldn't have been in Taiwan You'd or been the in a or any of Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I would probably have been, would have been paying two hundred pound in Ibiza to walk through a door to do it there. Yeah. But um, but no, I mean, surfing for me is more than just surfing terrible two foot waves. It is. It's about who you surf with and good stuff. Uh, and stuff like you know. It's good answer. You fall on my side of the debate there. Yeah, but I, I can see from the younger generation they've been brought up with Instagram and, and stuff like that, and it's all about how popular you are and yeah. how many likes you get, which none of us can deny. And it's feel good if you I put mean, something on Instagram think, and get three likes like for it. Perhaps missing out on something, you know. I, you see a lot of guy like young kids now going surfing, and, and every. Even at a young age, they treat every surf like a training session. You know, it's yeah, like they're exactly. working on a particular move every session. Whereas, I think I was just like a you know like a rapper drain pipe. I just be frantically catch as many ways as I could, just out of sheer enjoyment when I was yeah. a kid. You know, and I'm sure you were probably the same. This the, the idea of going out and trying to achieve a goal every time is is something that's maybe t- sort of taken the fun out of it. Do you think? Oh, definitely. I mean, uh, to me, it's, it's it's difficult to sort of. I mean, when you do a competition, it's, treating surfing as a competition to me is quite a difficult. It's quite a difficult thing to do because, like I say, I know it's an old term, but the the best surfer is the person having the most fun. If you're not exactly. having the most fun, you might have done an air reverse, but you might have not have like the tweak you had halfway through yeah. it. So actually, you're still not feeling good. Yeah. And then you've got someone like me who comes in and does a. A terrible floater, and I'm like, yes. <laughs> yeah, but even, or, even, or a head you know, dip. even you know when you surf, you know, say two foot Ogmore, and, and you're getting a head dip, you know, and 
you're not taking yourself too seriously. You know, yeah. Whereas a lot of guys would just wouldn't even do something as yeah. as as inane as a head kick because they wouldn't want to look. They wouldn't want to look like they're trying. But they're to they're the shirts that you have the most fun, aren't exactly. they? Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's really yeah. interesting that you said that you don't think the the kind of some of the younger surfers coming up today have experienced it. I think we kind of feel the same when we talk about our parents' generation going surfing because they've got such incredible stories that we've heard. Oh man, what it would it be like to be back? to be back then and it seemed to be a lot freer and, and there's, there's no evidence of it either well, the great exactly no Facebook no Instagram so these yeah. stories were allowed to happen without too much um, judgement and they're, they're classic stories but I wonder if kind of the next generation will listen to some of our stories because we've got some funny stories yeah. between us and think oh that, we can't do that anymore that will never happen and I wonder if, it, if that jockification of surfing is to do with kind of the movement of time and is it inevitable? I mean, well, that remains to be seen because actually in coming weeks we've got um, the jockification, jock versus purist debate coming up and we've got some very uh, interesting guests lined up for Here's that. a question for you guys oh, then. Gone. So if you could choose an era, a, the era to be born oh. in, what would you go for? We've had, Elliot and I have had this conversation I know so exactly many times. Mean. Elliot's got a brilliant, um, well, an answer to this. Go for it. Well, I would, it would 100%, I would want to be in my late teens around about 66. Just wow, to confirm wow, for the really... listener, Elliot wasn't in his late teens around 66. <laughs> he would like not to travel quite. back in time. He was in his 30s. I want, I want that, that, hot, that, old. I want that, that hot tub time machine in the corner of the garden. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. I would be there. I'd be there with Nat and, and Bob McTavish serving you know, Honolulu Bay. That well, would be me. This is another question that I, I always pose, and I know the answer to this, but for, again, for the benefit of the listener, would you take modern equipment back or would you go with the equipment there at the time? I would take the knowledge that I have of modern yeah. equipment and make a fortune and, <laughs> and surf the yeah. actual equipment of the so time considerably better than everyone else. What you're saying you would do is steal from Simon Except Anderson. That, <laughs> pretty much, no. Yeah. no I, I actually, do you know what? It's when, you, when I've watched videos of like Nat Young, for example, when you watch him surfing in the sort of like 65, 66, it he, is, he was genuinely surfing as well as any longboarder is surfing now. So I think it's a bit, probably, it's very arrogant of me to say that I could go back and somehow, but I think, especially with, with the shortboard stuff, um, I think a lot of what limited them was like in the, in, you know, in the sort of early 70s was knowledge of what was possible. When you see, you know, guys like Josh Kerr or something ride a single fin, mm -hmm. they can do so much more than those guys could. And it was just because they didn't, they didn't really know what they kind of, yeah. what, what was possible almost. You know, like Roger Bannister running the four-minute mile. He, people thought he was going to die. Yeah. They literally thought that. Whereas now it's just a common occurrence. You know. So. Yeah, of course. Okay. Well, that leaves me to say um, thank you so much, uh, Miles, for coming on. Uh, a truly interesting character in Welsh surfing, and someone who will always go in any conditions, especially if it's big and scary. Indeed. Unless it's sunny and dry, and I'll be biking. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Unless it's two foot on shore. <laughs> yeah. Indeed, and really nice to be able to hear some of those stories in more detail from the horse's mouth, so to speak. Now, to the listener. If you've got something you want to send us, then please do at castcrest at gmail.com. And also, don't forget, you can subscribe to us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, as well as on YouTube, where you'll be able to listen to any of our ever-growing back catalogue of episodes. And uh, next week... Oh, there's the dog knocking over the beer live from the garden studio. <laughs> so uh, next week, Tom and I will be reunited as we chat to perhaps one of the most hazard-prone and entertaining raconteurs in Welsh surfing. 
Mark Splinter Griffiths. And for those of you who know Splint, uh, you're sure to tune in because, well, you'll know what's coming. And for those of you who aren't so familiar with Aberavon's fourth most famous export, after Sheen, Burton and Hopkins, then you are in for a treat. So until then, Hoyle Bauer. Goodbye. Cheerio. One, two, three.